I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Ann Foster and this is part two of... I mean, I'm going to say asterisk number of episodes about Hortense Mancini, because frankly, I'm I, I'm just writing up my notes for the episodes. When I get to the number of pages, it usually takes to be an episode. I'm like, OK, time to do an episode. So I don't know. It's going to be at least three. It might be four. We've never done five. So I guess we'll just see where this all takes us. Hortense Mancini. Last time we talked about she was the niece, one of the nieces, the Mazarinettes, the nieces of Cardinal Mazarin, and he married them all off to various people for power reasons. Hortense was his favorite, and so he married her to the richest man in France, who is a man that we're calling AC, who was terrible. If you pieced out of last episode before we got into the details of their horrible marriage, just know it ended with Hortense deciding to leave him after having had four children. She's like 20 years old at this point, I think. And yeah, so my sources, I think it's a lot of the same stuff as last time, but maybe some new stuff. So to recap, there's the book Mistresses, Sex and Scandal at the Court of Charles II by Linda Porter. The King's Mistresses, The Liberated Lives of Marie Mert, Mancini, Princess Colonna, and her sister Hortense, Duchess Mazarin by Elizabeth C. Goldsmith. And then also an article called Marie Mancini, Writing for Her Life by Sarah Nelson. I'll put the link in the show notes, but that was on tnfonline.com. Got some quick facts from Britannica.com and Wikipedia.com. So, yeah, we're just going to pick right up where we left off last time, which is that Hortense was ready to leave her husband, and here's how she did it. So, she had all these sisters. She also had her brother, Philippe, who I'm a fan of Philippe. Honestly, I don't know a lot about him, but I do know that he was always there for her. And Mazarin disinherited him, which makes me just assume he was cool. On the night of June 13th, 1668, Hortense ran away, and her plan went like this. Her brother Philippe provided her with a carriage, which she needed because she was going great distances, and AC had locked up Hortense's own carriage. And Philippe also remained behind to help cover for her, so it's not specifically like, you know, like where you put stuffed animals and pillows in your bed and you pretend like you're still there, but it's kind of like that in the grand scheme of like actual life or death stakes situation. So he was there also just to make it seem like he didn't, he wasn't one of her accomplices. She was accompanied by Philippe's servant, Narcisse. Now, 
Narcisse was a character in the greatest TV show of all time, Rain. Not that same person, but the same name, and so I have a good feeling about this Narcisse. And also, Hortense was accompanied by her servant, Nanon. And I have to say, Nanon stays with her, I think, throughout everything. Like, Nanon could not be a more faithful, better, more devoted servant. Nanon and Hortense were both disguised in men's clothing, hashtag pants on. Oh, which reminds me that in the merch store, I've got the first ever pants or the first in quite a while, like literal pants you can buy. Because it was pointed out to me by a member of the Tits Out Brigade. We're talking so much this season about women. You know, the pants on is becoming kind of a new slogan, I like to say. So there are some comfortable joggers, a fashionable jogging pant that says on them, pants on, tits out. There's also other cute things with that slogan. There's like t-shirts, there's like a racerback tank, basically all things that I want for myself. There's a sports bra, which I just thought was LOL to have a sports bra the most tits-in garment you could possibly wear that says tits out on it. Anyway, vulgarhistory.store, just if you want to shop the sale. So in this installment of Women in Pants, so yeah, Hortense and Nanon were wearing pants. Hortense later wrote her memoir, and we're going to talk about that, but I just want to quote from her memoir at this point because she gave some real talk about the fact that their pants disguise did not work well. It was not believable. They were truly Greta Garbo in the Queen Christina movie, just like clearly women in pants, she wrote. We had been recognized as women almost everywhere. Nana was always slipping up and calling me Madame, and either for that reason or because my face gave away some hint of my sex. People watched us through the keyhole after we shut the door to our room, and they saw our long hair, which we let down as soon as we were alone because we were very uncomfortable with it up under our men's wigs. Nana was extremely small, and she looked so unnatural dressed in that way that I could not look at her without laughing. So, like, not amazing pants disguises, but good enough, frankly. So they left Paris, and so there's a whole thing, like, when you read the biographies of her, there's a lot of, like, to leave Paris, you have to go this way, but AC would know that's the way they were going, so they had to go this other way. Like, Philippe had figured out with other allies, like, a route for them to go. So they were leaving the gate, like, I guess there's a gate to enter Paris, where they met a guy called the Chevalier de Rohan, which is the same name as one of the people from the tale of Jean de Lamotte and the necklace, but I think it's just a common last name. Who knows? Chevalier de Rohan. So we know from the Chevalier, Deon, that's a word that means knight. So this is like an important knight type person. So he wasn't coming along with them, but he had volunteered his squire, Courbeville, to act as their man escort. Philippe and Rohan had worked closely in the preceding weeks to ensure the safe and fast transport out of the city for Hortense. So the two women and Courbeville traveled by carriage, postal coach, which was a more anonymous way to travel because... Fancy people weren't thought of to be in postal coaches. Open buggy and then horseback covering 250 miles in two days. They wound up in Nancy, capital of the independent duchy of Lorraine, where Charles, the Duke of Lorraine, had agreed to let her stay until she could get transportation out of the country because her goal, to recap, is to get to Rome. To get to her sister Marie, because Marie was also an accomplice and was happy to help her, and also, if she was in Rome, then it would be harder for her to be ordered back to France because she wasn't supposed to be leaving. So Charles, the Duke of Lorraine, who they're staying with, had tried unsuccessfully to marry her sister Marie years before, and he still held a flame for Marie, so he was happy to help out Hortense to make her way to Marie because these two women, we're going to get into more about Marie later as well, like they just, people they met were just devoted to them for life, which helps out when you're like on the run. So... Uh, the French court sent orders that Hortense had to be sent back, but Charles ignored the orders and instead provided her with 20 armed guards for their continued safety through the Swiss Alps, which is, I'm not super strong on my knowledge of like which country is where in Western Europe, but they have to like do a Von Trapp family climb every mountain situation through the Swiss Alps to get from France to Italy. En route, they stopped in the town of Altdorf, high in the mountains, where they learned that travelers leaving Switzerland from Milan had to quarantine due to the threat of plague. And this was a lengthy quarantine period, which I think we can all relate to in this COVID monkeypox era. And so they just settled in for a long wait in Altdorf. Like they just couldn't leave because of this quarantine. But it was maybe a good thing to stop there for a bit because Hortense had injured her leg while they were making one of their getaways. And the injury had been aggravated by all the journeying, you know, carriages and horseback riding, not great for a leg injury. And as we all know, not all doctors in Europe in this era knew what they were doing. 
famously, they tried to treat Christine of Sweden with brandy and peppercorns. So she was concerned gangrene might set in, which was a concern that made sense. She set up in a small room and wouldn't let anyone in except for Nanon and Corbeville as she convalesced. Corbeville was especially helpful, so he apparently had some skills, I don't know, you know, like leg massage or whatever. She later wrote she thought that her leg would have had to be amputated without his help. And then also, he became her lover, which, good for her. Frankly, she's been with AC for, I forget what, like seven years? Like, she needs to have some fun. So AC sent a representative after her, demanding she return, and she was like, mm, pass. But this guy, so he's kind of like following along the same route, and he had found two letters at the inn where Hortense had stayed before. Like, she just carelessly left these letters behind, I guess. And these letters proved that she'd been plotting her escape for a long time. AC came to the wrong conclusion, which was that Hortense was sleeping with Rohan, which was Corbeville's boss. And then AC was just like freaking out about her leaving and sort of like an Anne Boleyn adjacent moment. He accused her of incestuously sleeping with her brother, Philippe, which she was very much not. Nobody in Paris believed the incest accusation, but Hortense leaving had burnt some bridges, like with her sister Olympe and also with the king. Like it was just harder for people to be sympathetic to her when she had done this thing of, of leaving. Like it was easier to be sympathetic to a abused woman who was trapped, I guess, instead of someone who takes her life into her own hands, whatever. So the king did believe the parts of AC's libel saying that she had been sleeping with Rohan. And so the king punished Rohan by stripping him of his titles and plunging him into debt. But eventually the quarantine ended or she was just like, fuck this and left. And so they headed for Milan, which, so again, sound of music moment, they climbed every mountain, got to Milan, and that's where she was going because Marie was coming there to meet her, even though Marie lived in Rome. Marie was so happy to see her. Remember, they had gotten so close last time. Uh, Marie came along with her husband, Lorenzo, who is not the best husband, but he's also not the worst husband in the story because AC, like, who could be worse than that? Yeah, so Lorenzo sucked. He didn't like having Hortense there. He didn't like her. It's just like compared to AC, like no one's that bad, but Lorenzo's pretty bad. So he had received letters from Paris warning him against welcoming Hortense. So people really poisoning everybody against her while AC was just having, he wanted to make it that no one would let Hortense stay with them. But Marie liked Milan so much more than Rome that she was kind of dawdling, returning there for a while, using Hortense's presence as an excuse to maybe stay there longer because she just liked it there better. Philippe also caught up with him by now, their brother, so it was a fun sibling reunion. So it's the first time in eight years that these three had all been together in the same place. They persuaded Lorenzo to let them go for a holiday to Venice, where they enjoyed theater, opera, and more social events for Hortense to shine like the star that she was. So they finally got to Rome, and it had been by now four months since Hortense left Paris. Pressure from French emissaries was increasing on Lorenzo, who didn't want to keep her in the house because it was stressful for him, and also he sucked. Also, news of Hortense's affair with Courbeville was now public, not sure how. Even Marie and Philippe were mad about this. They demanded that he be sent back to France. I don't know if it was just like Hortense having an affair, like was bad for her case or whatever, or if it was just they didn't like that she was sleeping with a servant. So Hortense didn't want to uh, dismiss him because she liked him, but ultimately his own behavior made it kind of forced her hand. So Corbeville claimed that Rohan, his former employer, had been attempting to poison him and he was just going on and on about it. And eventually Hortense was like, you got to go. But also he probably was being poisoned. Like this is the story, like the stakes in the story are very extreme. So her Italian family connections helped her sort out a new place to live. So not with Marie and Lorenzo. So she was staying at the convent at the Campo Marzio with her aunt Anna Maria, the sister of their mom, slash also a sister of Mazarin, was the abbess. And Nanon got to stay there as well. Like Nanon, it's like if they're going to do a movie of this, I think Nanon is a good like narrator of it sort of thing. By the way, just to catch up with Courbeville, he was eventually caught and he was incarcerated in a papal fortress in the Mediterranean city of Civitavecchia. Marie demanded that Hortense be freed from the convent. So I guess Hortense hadn't chosen to stay there. Maybe she, I don't know. Marie just didn't want her to be there. And then Marie was told that AC was the only person who could demand that Hortense be freed. 
So Marie was just like, fuck this, and helped Hortense escape because Marie was just like really into the spirit of things by now. So they went back to live at Marie and Lorenzo's house again. Hortense wrote letters to try um, on behalf of Corbeville to try and have him freed from being imprisoned. She eventually pulled some strings with powerful people to get him released, and then Corbeville disappeared without a trace. So pretty suspicious, and he is probably murdered by somebody. But then, you know, sister reunion. So Marie and Hortense threw their attention into having great parties and staging plays, which they would act and dance in. The local gazettes, which were like one step up from pamphlets sort of thing. The history of like the publication of words becomes important in this. So the local gazettes wrote breathlessly about everything the sisters did, which was if you remember from the Christine of Sweden episode, like Roman society was like women can't sing in harmony and also there can't be theater and stuff. So it's like pretty scandalous for Roman society for women to be like whatever walking down the street. And these two were doing more than that. But they were doing that also. They moved around town on their own without escorts in carriage or by foot. One of the gazettes wrote that they were sumptuously dressed and were mistaken by some Spanish gentlemen for nymphs of the bordello. So they looked like sex workers, apparently. Honestly, like, of course, they're just like walking around because there's going to parties. There's nothing else for them to do because they're just waiting for the result of Hortense's legal battle. So they just spend their time looking fabulous and going to parties and being like the most famous people in town. Among the most famous people in town, because you know who else was there simultaneously to this, was Queen Christina of Sweden, cameo appearance. Um, This was in her later years era, when she was just living at that house, you know, growing oranges and stuff. And so she declared, Christina, that she would welcome Hortense as a resident at her palazzo. But later she was talked out of it, probably by Azzolino or somebody. Just because Hortense was such a scandalous person, it was kind of like... I don't know. I would have loved these two to have had a moment together. Hortense was a beautiful woman, as we know. I was thinking about how, like, you know, she was nine years old and all the men were just like, she's the prettiest person we've ever seen. And I was trying to think about, like, who to relate that to. You know, I've seen, like, pictures of, you know, there's easy pictures of current celebrities when they were young and, like, people who are pretty now were really pretty then. But the extreme the extreme effect that she had on people, like people thought she was so beautiful. I'm going to relate it to, even though she's not Italian, like Elizabeth Taylor, who is somebody who, like as a little girl, she was in, what was it, National Velvet and stuff. She was just like so beautiful. And then she grew up and she became a beautiful woman. But like, even as a girl, it was just like, she was like supernatural. It's like, of course she became a movie star. Like she just looked so, you know, Elizabeth Taylor had the thing where she was she had purple eyes and like her eyelashes, she had some sort of like eye situation where she grew like two rows of eyelashes. So it's like she always had falsies on. Like Hortense was so very beautiful. Even I just posted a bit ago for me, a bit longer ago for you on um, Twitter, just about Hortense part one. I posted a picture and somebody, remember the Tits Out Brigade was like, oh, she's so pretty. I need to draw her. And I was like, yeah, that is the effect that she had on all of the artists of Rome. So yeah, she was a frequent model for portrait painters. Everyone who saw her was just like, please let me paint you. Like, it's like, you know, when famous people are like, yeah, I was just like in the mall and somebody was like, be a model. Like she just had this effect on people. Her portraits became so coveted that two gentlemen had nearly fought a duel over one of them until Lorenzo interfered. Like a duel, not over her, just over a painting of her. Her portraits were copied and sold as prints, like miniatures of them were sent to everybody. So in a short time, her image became the face of beauty in European painting, like not just in Rome, but all over the place. Just she was so beautiful. People love portraits of her, which is also interesting because this was an era. I mean, she's like a fair skinned woman, but this was an era where like blonde hair was kind of the look. And she had like, if you see, there's like a gazillion portraits of her. She sort of looks like Marina Sirtis as Deanna Troy on Star Trek Next Generation. Like she's got black hair and sort of like an olive complexion and really dark eyes like she's just really really beautiful looking and so her sisters so like she and her sisters were all kind of like a sensation yet again an art historian said that just like the the way that her image went everywhere was an iconographic success without precedent like never before had one person been so popular as a subject of art So numerous portraits of both sisters were done. Marie, also beautiful, although she was apparently like 
the least beautiful of the Mazarinettes, which is like, I don't know, it's like the least delicious of a batch of chocolate chip cookies. Like, still great. So painters flocked to the palazzo, to Marie and Lorenzo's house, for the honor of painting them. So they were painted separately, they were painted together. Often paintings of the sisters were blended with those of mythological women. Like there's a painting of Hortense as Cleopatra. There's one of her as Aphrodite. There's one of her as an Amazon. There's one of her as, quote, an oriental queen. She's also painted as the goddess Diana. Like it's giving Helen of Troy, you know? Like she's just the most beautiful woman in the world. The paintings of Hortense from this era, of which a lot still are around, they show her always painted against a sky in a natural background, unlike other beauties painted of this time, including her sister, who were always placed against an indoor wall. So it wasn't just Hortense. It's like, oh my god, she's so beautiful. It's also her whole story was captivating. Like she was seen as this free spirit, someone who defied convention, someone who couldn't be tamed. Like she had to only be painted against nature. No walls could confine her. And so yeah, everyone all over Europe by now is breathlessly following what would she do next? Like this beautiful woman who was like so independent and doing her own thing. So remember from Christine of Sweden's story where the one pope died and the new pope came in and he was like, I hate fun. And he canceled like public performances of plays and stuff, but private performances were still allowed. So Marie kept on staging concerts and performances at her palazzo featuring both her and her sister in the ballets because they were so famous. Everybody wanted to see them acting in it as well, I'm sure. Despite all of this fame, it's the same thing today where it's just like, what's it called? You know, when people say like, I'll pay you in attention or whatever. It's like, that doesn't pay the bills. Like they were posing for these portraits, but they weren't paid for it, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, she was running low on funds because, well, lots of reasons. Like AC had cut her off entirely. Marie and Philippe had both been forbidden by, I think, the king to help her out or to support her financially. Like she had to leave Marie's house because she wasn't allowed to stay with her anymore. So she had to rent accommodations, which is another bill. And then Philippe was summoned back to French court because the king had found him a wife. And Hortense was like, you know what? I got to just see this through. So she decided she'd go along with him to try and figure out a separation, like a formal separation of assets with AC so she could get some money and just like move on with her life. And so she headed back to France. But she was in no hurry. Philippe was in no hurry. So they just kind of took their time getting there. Like he wasn't super excited about his arranged marriage. And she, you know, she knew she needed to hash things out with AC, but she was kind of like, you know, that can wait. So ultimately it took them six months to get there. And this is not a journey that should take six months if you're just like going. But since everyone was paying attention to all of Hortense's movements because she was this famous celebrity, the public were curious to know why this trip was taking so long. Um, they saw her dawdling as like an act of defiance, which maybe it was. So they finally got to France where they settled in the town of Nevers, possibly pronounced Nevers, which was on the main route towards Paris. Philippe was technically the Duke of Nevers, so this was his region, so he had a place there. And so they just were like, what if we just like chill here for a while before we like go to Paris? So they hung out in Nevers, hosting theatrical shows, um, having dances, late night banquets, just like having a good time, which they deserve after everything they've gone through. AC was, of course, going bananas. He acquired a warrant to arrest and forcibly return Hortense to him. This document was delivered to the city council of Nevers, where the city fathers offended by his show of force, refused to comply. The king backed them up, the city, the city fathers, saying Hortense should not be molested. AC did not take this well. He was, as we know, not a man who liked being told no. And since Hortense wasn't there, he eventually took out his rage on the priceless art collection he had inherited from Hortense's uncle, Cardinal Mazarin. So remember it was like the greatest art collection in all of Europe or whatever, and like Mazarin wouldn't even let people see it and stuff? Well, a lot of it was naked people, you know, like naked statues, like sexy paintings, etc. So early one morning, AZ, a person with some real hangups, remember he tried to get the milkmaids to be like less sensual, butter churning or whatever, like he's got some issues and he's working them out on other people. So he carried a hammer, a knife, and a bucket of black paint. 
And for an entire day, he spent the day either painting the black paint to cover up the genitalia on the paintings, um, hacking off the naughty bits from all the sculptures and um, slashing all the tapestries. His servants tried to stop him because, again, this was the greatest art collection ever assembled in Europe, but he would not be restrained. So, like, these are works by, like, da Vinci, like, Raphael, Titian, like, incredible pieces of art. And he was just, like, wrecking them because his wife had left him. So he only stopped due to exhaustion. Like, he only stopped when he collapsed. And the next day, a courier came from the king telling him to stop, but it was too late. News of the crime spread. Gazettes and pamphlets were published mourning the loss of the art. And this was actually good news for Hortense because it swayed public opinion back towards her. And public opinion would play a part in how the judges would eventually decide on her whole case of, like, separating from AC. All that she was asking for, frankly, was she wanted permission to live in a convent of her choice in Paris, where she could receive visitors at will. She didn't want to have to accompany AC on his long trips to boring parts of the country, and she wanted to be able to choose her own servants. So she's not asking for that much, really, you know? So finally, Hortense and Philippe traveled from Nevers to Paris. Well, en route, she got a message directing her to go to the Abbey Notre-Dame-du-Lis, a school-slash-residence for young noble women under the protection of the crown. The abbess was not super keen to have this, like, famously scandalous woman living there, but Hortense was on excellent behavior the whole time. After two months, the king attempted an intervention, like a mediation, to try and, like, sort things out with her and AC. Thank God she didn't have to meet with AC, but he summoned Hortense for an audience with him, the king. And he was like, look, do you want me to like mediate you and your husband? And she was like, I'll think about it. But ultimately, she knew that that would never work out. Like AC would never give her up. And so she chose to flee again. But this time, she was accompanied by a chaperone named Madame Bellizani, whose job was to make sure she went right to Rome and behaved herself on the journey. So no more, you know, dawdling, etc. Her trip was again fodder for like, gazettes, the pamphlets, and gossip. But even though she had this chaperone with her, she managed to arrange a route where all the stops were in places where she had friends. So she got to just like hang out with them, whatever, like go to parties and things. Three months later, she finally got to Rome again. So it had been two years since they left, mostly because her trips took so long. And the Mancini sisters took the town by storm again. They posed for more portraits. They were the talk of the town again. 1671 had a really hot summer during which Marie and Hortense went swimming in the river there, which scandalized everyone, because I assume they were nude, I guess, and also swimming wasn't really a thing for Roman people who weren't allowed to have fun, especially women. But honestly, if it's hot, like, do what you need to do. A friend of theirs at this time was Philippe, the Chevalier de Lorraine. So not the guy before who was the Duke of Lorraine. This is the Chevalier de Lorraine. Everyone's called Philippe, and there's about to be another one. So the Chevalier de Lorraine was a longtime family friend. He was in town visiting with his brother. Philippe the Chevalier of Lorraine was the boyfriend of someone who we know from the Chevalier de Anne episode. He was the boyfriend of Prince Philippe, the trans sister of Louis XIV, um, who Maya Dean spoke about in that episode. So the Chevalier was in Rome sort of an exile for being the boyfriend of Prince Philippe. There were rumors that um, the Chevalier became Marie's lover and that his brother became Hortense's lover, and maybe they did, and good for them. Marie's husband was getting tired of all of this because he just like didn't like a strong, independent wife. And he was actually even less fun now than he had been before. He and Marie were at this point living quite separate lives, and her siblings noticed that she was afraid of him for good reason. He like murdered people. She fell ill. Um, and she was concerned that he was trying to poison her, which probably he was. Um, he had a reputation for violence. Marie was really into astrology and star charts and came to believe that, like, astrologically speaking, the time had come for her to leave her husband, just like Hortense had done. And she was thinking of kind of the reverse of Hortense um, and to go to leave Rome and go to France. So side note, like, we're just going to pivot a bit and Marie's going to be the main character for a minute because she kind of is and I need to tell you about her. So Marie Mancini. Fun facts. So she was really into astrology to the point that she had actually published an atlas of astrology, like a book, I think two books of astrology. Remember their father had also been an astrologer slash necromancer. So 
already. How cool is she? So she was quickly married to Lorenzo right after she had broken up with Louis XIV as a young teenager. And at first their marriage was okay, which was kind of surprising given that Marie had been kind of forced into this after being forced to break up with Louis XIV. So they had three sons. And after that, Marie had insisted that they, that they live separate lives. The explanation she put forward in her memoir, because yes, she also wrote a memoir, was that she was afraid she might not survive another pregnancy after the difficult delivery of their third child. Other biographers have proposed, perhaps, she was also concerned because an astrologer had predicted that she would not survive the birth of a fourth child. Um, there might have also been concerns related to division of inheritances. The report Lorenzo had fathered another child at the same time. And Marie's general jealousy over Lorenzo's amorous adventures. But frankly, if she was really into astrology and was kind of over Lorenzo and didn't want to die, it's like, yeah, just like don't sleep near your husband anymore. May 29th, 1672. So this is like 11 years after they had this sort of separation of bedrooms. Marie fled Rome with her sister. So bear in mind, again, Marie later wrote memoirs. We do know kind of what was going through her head at this time which was she was frightened for her life, either that she might be killed by Lorenzo or maybe forcibly put away, either of which were real things that could have happened, not just because Lorenzo was a violent person, but because it's just like what guys did. So other husbands had done this to other noble wives, like five years before this, a woman named Diane Elizabeth de Rossan had been murdered on the orders of her husband. The killers were convicted, but her husband went unpunished because he was rich and powerful. Diane Elizabeth had been, like Marie, a star on the Roman social scene, and that hadn't protected her, so why would it protect Marie? Diane Elizabeth had actually been a favorite of Queen Christina at the time. So again, like on this podcast, we're looking at all these women who did these cool tits out things, but it's to the point that I sometimes forget that not all women were able to do cool tits out things. It's like, it was actually really dangerous to be doing the stuff they were doing, and I just need to remember that for myself. Like they were literally running for their lives. So, this time, how they escaped. So Marie and Hortense pretended to be heading out just for a day trip, accompanied by Nenon, ever faithful, as well as Marie's servant Morena, and a valet. They brought almost zero luggage with them because they had to look like they weren't running away forever. They had to look like, we're going for a fun day trip. All four women, the two sisters and the two servants, all wore men's clothes under their women's clothes. So like pants underneath their dresses. So they could leave, be like, we're just going for a fun day trip in dresses, but inside they're wearing pants. And they headed out and they had arranged for a boat, but the boat wasn't coming by. Um, and they started to worry that maybe no one was coming. When someone showed up on a horse, Hortense pulled out two pistols. Love it. But then they recognized the guy was another valet who had been sent ahead to scout for the boat and he had found them. So their men's disguises were again unconvincing. The captain realized right away, like, these are women running away. And so the captain of the boat that they had acquired demanded more money, kind of blackmailing them because he was putting himself in danger by helping them flee. But guess what? Marie was rich, and so she paid him off, and they sailed to Monaco. They'd already prepared counterfeit papers claiming they didn't have plague, because at that time, kind of like our time, you had to prove you didn't have a certain disease before being allowed to cross international borders. And so they entered French territory. But by now, Lorenzo, who had been out of town when they left, got back to Rome, and he figured out immediately that they had run away. He sent horsemen in pursuit and a galley, like a boat filled with his men, headed for Marseille, where he assumed they were heading. And, in fact, an informant had let slip to him that Marie had gotten a letter from her ex-lover, Louis XIV, promising them a safe passage back to France. She'd probably gotten that letter through their connection with the Chevalier of Lorraine, the lover of Prince Philippe, who was the trans sister of Louis XIV. So it all came to a head at Marseille. Not with a ship of people attacking them, but just with kind of lower key. Um, a guy presented Marie with a letter demanding Lorenzo wanted her back in Rome. He tried to convince her by appealing to her as a mother because she, like Hortense, had children she left behind. Marie wrote later in her memoir, Although I loved them tremendously, I feared peril even more, and having no doubt that there was some scheme hidden beneath his charming words, I told him succinctly I had no intention of returning. And then Marie and Hortense were welcomed by the lieutenant governor of Provence, the Count of Grignan, who offered hospitality and protection. His wife provided them with fresh clothing, and she's the one who noted that they were like two heroines out of a novel with plenty of jewels, but no clean linen. And I think this is part of where their whole trip was, everyone's so excited about it, because they were living like people from a story, but they were real life people. Lorenzo continued trying to force Marie back to Rome, sending a stream of messengers to try and negotiate with her. 
And he was like AC, even more than AC. He was really influential. He was a prince. And so he's trying to make it so nobody would help her, like how Hortense had been sort of cut off as well by AC. The Count of Grignon had their back. He posted two armed guards to watch over the sisters. But still, Marie saw she would have to negotiate directly with Lorenzo to acquire her independence. She wrote to him, and like these letters still exist, she urged him to understand her point of view. Like she knew that public image was everything to him, and she had something on him. Like she kept hinting in her letters and in her book that like she had something she could blackmail him about that would maybe ruin his public image. So that was her, how she was trying to convince him. Anyway, Marie and Hortense continued traveling through France, evading agents of both of their powerful husbands. While stopped at the town of Mirabeau, AC sent an agent with instructions to kidnap Hortense. Hortense fled to a wooded area, like flashbacks of what I told you about Charles II from before. Marie convinced the would-be kidnapper Hortense had already left. At this point, the sisters understood they had to travel separately just to make it more likely at least one of them could escape. And Hortense wrote, The separation from my sister was very painful for me. And in return for the promise she made me to stay in Chambéry, where she was headed until the king permitted her to live in France, I promised her not to go further than Grenoble in order to be nearer to her and to have news of her more often. And we'll catch up with Marie in a bit, but we're going to pivot back to Hortense as the main character again. So Hortense remained, as she wrote, in a place called Chambéry, where she stayed under the protection and hospitality of a guy named Duke Charles Emmanuel of Savoy. So Savoy was an independent state with per capita the largest army of any European state. This guy, Charles Emmanuel, was certainly able to resist pressure from both the French king and the Italian nobility, who were pressuring him to give Hortense up, but he had, like, the largest army of anyone, so he's like, don't worry about it. Also, he lived for drama and knew that housing Hortense would make things more interesting. He was also an old pal of Hortense's from back when she was 14, like, pre-marriage. And so back when she was 14, pre-marriage, she, along with like the king and everybody, the royal court, had visited Chambéry, and she made a lasting impression on him, like she did with everybody, because she was this little Elizabeth Taylor, beautiful child. He had also been one of her many suitors before she wound up with AC. And so as per what seems to keep happening to her, he quickly became obsessed with her. He wasn't around all the time, but he paid spies and emissaries to keep him up to speed. So with everything she did, his intention seemed to have been like just to make sure she was happy and to learn what would make her happy. Like, bear in mind, he was actively married to someone else, but he was just so fascinated by her. And when she showed up, she first just did a lot of self-reflection and prayer, later saying this was her season of reflection, study, and reading. In fact, it was at the end of this day that she would begin to write her memoirs, but we'll get to that. She wrote letters to the king, requesting she would like to receive additional income from him, and at this point, he agreed. After like a year, Marie came to visit, but Hortense refused to see her because, well, at this point, both of the sisters were such scandalous figures. She knew like if she saw her sister, that might imperil her own case. And it's all, I don't know, I'm sure she was sad about it. But slowly, she began socializing again, including going on her favorite thing, hunting excursions. And she was like, she was beautiful and stuff, but she's also really good at hunting, apparently. Hence all the portraits of her as Diana, goddess of the hunt. All the latest plays from Paris came and were performed at this palace, and she was a guest of honor for their performances. At one point, AC bribed one of her ladies-in-waiting to spy on her, and when she found out, Hortense had that woman fired. At one point, AC came up to Savoy to try and see her, and she locked herself in her room and said she would rather die than see him. I feel like not an exaggeration. He is the worst. She also learned in Savoy a card game called Basset from Venice, and this is, like, believe it or not, going to become important. In next week's episode. So this was a gambler's game based more on chance than skill. One could learn, win, and lose quickly. Hortense wore a mask while she played because she, like, her emotions were so present on her face. She had no poker face. So she wore a mask, you know? Clever. Because it was a game of chance, she lost money sometimes, and the Duke would help her recoup her losses by giving her gifts of jewels, clothes, and new servants, including a dark-skinned boy named Mustafa, who remained in her service until her death. And I mentioned him because he would appear by her side in portraits. Like, you'll, when you inevitably Google image search for Hortense Mancini to see how beautiful she was, Mustafa will be in some of those portraits. Then, 1675, a new face appeared on the social scene in Savoy, who is César Vichard de Saint-Riel, a writer, novelist, and historian in his mid-30s, so like a bit older than Hortense. He tried to make a go of things in Paris as like a writer, but hadn't really 
had much success. And he's from Savoy, so he's like returning to his hometown. He was, of course, eager to meet Hortense because everybody was. He wrote about her. The color of her eyes has no name, neither blue nor gray nor quite black, but a blend of all of these. When she stares at you, which happens rarely, you feel that a light has penetrated to the depths of your soul and you abandon all hope of hiding anything from her. It is as though she were born to be loved, not to love. He was the one who encouraged her and then helped her to write her memoirs, actually. Then because he was a writer already, she entrusted the printing and circulation of the memoirs to him. So the book was published. It was the first time a French woman not of royal blood had written her life story with her name as author printed on the title page. To commit one's private life to print was a major transgression for a woman who's supposed to be like humble and quiet. Hortense knew this, but the opening paragraph in her autobiography kind of explained what she was up to. So she says, I know that a woman's glory lays not in her giving rise to gossip, but one cannot always choose the kind of life one would like to lead. Bear in mind, she's only 29. All this had happened and she's writing her memoir and it's like lots of stuff to put in there. Eventually, the people of Savoy started getting tired of her because they thought that she was like bossy or like, I don't know. The Duke wasn't around enough to sort of like peer pressure everyone to like her again. People found her pretentious. Her servants clashed with the Duke's servants. And she began planning a departure. So, but then the Duke suddenly died aged 40. Poison was suspected because that's just what everyone was dying of in this story. Their son was still little. And so his wife became the regent and she didn't like Hortense, which is like, some people think that like Hortense was like the mistress of the Duke and maybe she was because it does seem kind of like a sugar daddy type situation that he was just like buying her stuff all the time. But they might not have been lovers. I don't know. Anyway, the wife was just like, time for you to go. So Hortense wasn't sure where to go next until she got an invitation from a guy named Ralph Montague, an English diplomat who she'd known back in France, who thought she may want to come over, reunite with her former suitor, now King Charles II of England. She had another connection to England as well, because her cousin Laura, remember from the Mazarinettes at the beginning, was the mother of a woman named Maria Beatrice d'Este, aka Mary of Modena, who was the second wife of James. So Charles II is the king. His brother is James, who is eventually going to, like, spoiler, become the next king. And James is the one who's the father of Anne from Anne I, from the favorite who I did the podcast about before. So Mary of Medina was his younger Catholic wife who she had the baby, but then Anne I was like, wasn't she at like Bath? And she was spreading rumors that it was like a switcheroo and Mary hadn't actually had a baby, etc. That's Mary of Medina. So anyway, Mary was Hortense's cousin's child. So her cousin once removed, second cousin, something. And she was very lonely in England on her own being Catholic and married to this person. She and Hortense had been corresponding already, so this was another good reason Hortense could go there to be her companion. So, Hortense left suddenly, without fanfare, taking almost nobody with her other than her immediate household, so like Nanon, Mustafa, and a few others, and she didn't let anyone know she was leaving because AC would chase her, obviously. She did, however, let her friend the writer know about her plans because he acted as her negotiator. In fact, he tried to negotiate with AC, which is like, no one's going to ever achieve that, like, especially not a man who AC probably thinks is her lover. Anyway, he had also worked at translating and printing her memoirs in English, such that by the time she arrived in England, those had been published, and so she was already famous there too. Side note on her memoirs, this was entirely unprecedented that Hortense and then Marie like, wrote and then published their memoirs under their own names. And the speed with which translations were published, not just English, but into Italian and Spanish, shows how everybody was so interested in this because they were both so famous from the portraits and stuff. The fact that Marie even wrote her memoir is because of this interest. So what had happened is that Hortense published her memoir and then somebody, some like, I don't know, grifter, just published a, a book that they claimed to be the memoir of Marie. It wasn't. So then kind of forced Marie to write her own memoir to like correct the record. So this is from... I'm going to be reading quotations from this really good essay by Sarah Nelson, Marie Mancini, Writing for Her Life. And I put the link to that in the show notes. But she really explains really well about the writing of the memoirs and sort of the effect and the importance of it. So this is a quote from Sarah Nelson. On one hand, it is puzzling why noble women of high rank, such as the Mancini sisters, after having caused scandal by running away, would risk further degradation of their reputations by publishing their life writing. 
Women of their class, if they wrote about themselves at all, allowed their writing to circulate only in manuscript form within a highly restricted society of their peers. These are two women who dared to take unconventional steps, though. Women of their class also did not travel around Europe, sometimes disguised as men, evading detention by authorities or agents of their husbands, but the Mancini sisters did. The influence of print culture on all levels of society was beginning to take hold in a new way at the time when they chose to publish their memoirs in the 1670s. Elizabeth Goldsmith and her biography calls them arguably the first media celebrities in the earliest years of journalism, when news of prominent people and current events was just beginning to be given circulation in print. So then, this is like the whole gazettes situation. And so by, this is Sarah Nelson again, quote, by choosing to publish their life writing, the Mancini sisters were recognizing and participating in this movement toward print culture and toward a mass market for political news and news about prominent people. No longer were their personal reputations merely a topic for gossip at court. The ordinary reading public now knew their names and could follow their escapades. Thus, they both cite in the opening lines of their books the main reason for their publishing, to defend their reputations, which had been publicly besmirched. In both women's struggles to win independence from their husbands, Hortense's struggle was conducted primarily in the courts of law and Marie's in the royal courts, their published texts were introduced as evidence, sometimes in their favor and sometimes against them. So they did write their memoirs partially just to get more sympathy towards them and to explain how they'd been abused by their husbands and why they had to leave. So Hortense's book was called Memoir DMLDM, which stands for the Memoirs de Madame la Duchesse Mazarin. It was a commercial success. So then there was this fake book published one year later called Memoirs de MLPMM, Madame la Princesse Marie Mancini. So this was a fake book. It was written by somebody who knew about her life in Rome, but not written by her. When Marie learned about this book, she disavowed it. And that was the reason why she ended up writing her own memoir, which she called La Vérité dans son jour, or The Truth in Its Own Light. So saying like, here's the truth. Here's what really happened. Yeah, so Hortense's memoir has come out. Marie's is going to come out shortly. Hortense is en route to England, and that is our cliffhanger for this week. So the trip to England took three months because I think we all know by now she just like takes her time traveling. But also she had to like, not in like a cute, fun way, like going to plays, but also because she's going across. Wars were happening and stuff. They had to go through sort of like not obvious places. AC's agents were after her all the time. And yeah, her book was published in English just before she arrived or just after she arrived. And she was in London. What was Hortense going to do? Well, next time we're going to hear about her life in London, which includes becoming the mistress of King Charles II. She's also going to revolutionize a bunch of other stuff for women in general. She's also going to introduce a very famous beverage to England. And next time, I'm also going to tell you the story of a second other very famous beverage and how that was introduced to England. That's going to be next time, part three, Hortense Takes London. So thank you all for listening to Vulgar History. As per ever, you can contact me if you like an email thing. There's a link to email me at the website vulgarhistory.com with your comments or suggestions. And honestly, I love like keep them coming. I'm getting so many good suggestions of people to do future episodes on. And I really, I love, I love getting these comments. So please don't, don't hold back. If you want to like contact me about anything, you can also send me messages on Instagram at vulgarhistorypod. That's where I'm going to be posting a shit ton of pictures of Hortense Mancini and all the other people from the story because of anyone we've ever done on this podcast, the amount of artwork of her done in her lifetime is quite incredible and she's so beautiful to look at and let's see we're also on twitter at vulgar history if you want to support me on patreon you go to patreon.com slash ann foster writer that's where we get vulgar peace theater episodes um i had been calling them minisodes which is where i talk with lanoa johnson and allison epstein about costume dramas but we decided in our latest one we're going to call them maxisodes because they tend to be like two and a half to three hours long generally longer, sometimes twice as long as the movies themselves. So we've recently done The Girl King, uh, 2015 movie that tells the story of Christina of Sweden as though it was a lesbian love story, which is quite a take. The next one we've coming out, I'm not sure, it probably won't have come out by the time this episode does, but we're going to be doing Les Miserables, the like 2012 movie version with Hugh Jackman. Anyway, it's a good time. I also, every month I'm doing So this asshole episodes, the most recent one is going to be about Cardinal Mazarin because there's a lot to talk about there with that guy. So anyway, 
if you support me on Patreon for at least $1 a month, you get early access to all episodes of Vulgar History. And then at least $5 a month, you get the Vulgar Peace Theater and also So This Asshole episodes. I also mentioned earlier on, there's new merch at the Vulgar History store. We've got the new Pants On, Tits Out athleisure collection of pants, jogging pants. There's a cropped hoodie. There's a t-shirt, racerback tank, stickers. I have to say, based on what people buy from the store, a lot of you are into stickers and I love that. Anyway, if you are shopping at the store, you can always use code TITSOUT for free with shipping or TITSOUT10 for 10% off. And then if and when you're buying books, like if you want to buy some of these biographies of Hortense Mancini, Marie Mancini, if you want to buy their memoirs, there's links in the show notes, or you can use the go to bookshop.org, which is a website where you can buy books and a little bit of money goes to support me in the show as well. So the link to that is in the show notes. And yeah, I'm really excited to get into more Hortense with you next week because she goes to London during the reign of Charles II and it's quite an era for... It's quite a fun place for her to be, frankly, because she spent the first part of her life being, you know, controlled by Mazarin, and then she's in this like horrible, abusive child marriage, and now she's finally gets to be herself, and we get to see what that looks like for her, and she really gets to unleash, um, Hortense unleashed in London. We're gonna get to that next time. So until then, keep your pants on and your tits out. Talk to you next time. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumaki. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.